Hi everyone, my name is Andreas Feiner and I would like to welcome you to our podcast, Important Problems. Together with my wonderful guests, we will address urgent problems such as sustainability, nature and mental health and how we can tackle them. Our aim is to show you that everyone can solve important problems. Hello everyone. Today we are meeting Hans-Peter Gülich. Hans-Peter is the founder of Didon AI and uh, with his uh, company and the Verband Öffentliche Banken, um, he has built a new taxonomy tool, which he wants to use in order to help the European economies to decarbonize. Hans-Peter is a very thoughtful person and he knows a lot of details. And one thing that particularly stuck out with me is a story about Switzerland and how they decarbonized their railway system. And we went into ChatGPT and looked into what was the mood back 110 years about that change. And remarkably, it's almost the same as we would experience today. Um, but have a look into the show notes and enjoy the conversation with Hans-Peter. Have a good one and see you very soon. Hello, Hans-Peter. It's a pleasure to have you in our Important Problems podcast today. I'm really delighted to have you. Um, we've been talking for a couple of months now, and uh, it's it's an amazing opportunity now to have you on the podcast, uh, given what we just talked about in the pre-briefing. So if you could introduce yourself to, to our listeners, that would be amazing. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, it's an interesting kind of channel to talk about problems of the world and how we can solve them. Just briefly to myself, my name is Hans Peter. Um, I'm a computer scientist by education. And uh, I wrote my PhD already 27 years ago in the space of AI. Although, bear in mind, 27 years ago, we didn't call AI AI. We called it expert systems. Uh, so at the university, we called them maybe robotics. They are doing AI. We are doing statistics and mathematics. And these are expert systems. And nowadays, because we work with neural nets, so for example, nowadays everything is called AI. Marketing-wise, easier expert systems was a little bit humble, uh, a little hard to spell. So where do you come from? So, so what's your background? Um, so what led you to, to do a PhD in expert systems and now call it AI? Uh, originally, I um, did a, the technical kind of school education. And therefore, the technical kind of interest was there, was there, was there right from the beginning. And when the decision came up, what shall I study? Physics, I loved physics, so physics was an idea. And then I was introduced to uh, the first university and we had these kind of, in German, Schnupperkurse. I wouldn't even know how to spell this in English, how to call this in English, <laughs> okay. where you can you know, trial, trial <laughs> kind of uh, lectures, where you can follow some of these lectures. And of course, I selected astrophysics. It sounded so well. And I went in there and the first topic was just, oops, no. Astrophysics is not my topic. <laughs> <laughs> and I was really good at physics, but okay. this lecture I was not even close to be able to follow. So uh, physics was okay. not the, the major that I was selecting. And then I chose uh, computer science. And then my math teacher told me for my A-level, when you do kind of computer science or mathematics or whatever, always do it jointly with something else. So either machinery or whatever. So I selected um, a kind of economics. So that's why I did computer science for economics. And this is how it all came up. 
and then I did my um, first my respective studies, my masters, and in the end, I kind of stayed in that space. And talking about a PhD, you always have to find a, a, P, a kind of a professor first, and then you talk with the professor what kind of yeah. topics are of interest. And coincidentally, I had the mm -hmm. chance back then at BMW in Germany to do a PhD mm -hmm. kind of student program. And therefore, I combined the practical requirement in this case from BMW, it was BMW Bank back then, to assess counterparty risks mm -hmm. and combined it with the mm -hmm. logic of AI. How can we use expert systems to make these assessments more accurate? Wow. And then you kind of, you know, you ventured into, you know, setting up your own firm um, and uh, you did that. Now this was then based on what I have done, because what I did is uh, my parents were always self-employed. So I had this kind of a mindset of being self-employed all my life. So already while being a student, etc., I opened up some companies and of course they failed. What is other the case? <laughs> no idea, no experience whatsoever. I wanted to establish telephone cards for the US. Bear in mind, we talk about the 90s, no mobile phones, no nothing. And I, uh, I even had first clients where you had a telephone card and you went to a, a normal phone yeah. booth in the US, you keyed in a number, and then you called from the US to Europe for about uh, 10 or 15 okay. cents the minute, okay. instead of about $5. Oh, wow. So I had some travel agencies that kind of bought my telephone cards and gave them to their clients. <laughs> but of course, it was always kind of uh, negative from the financial <laughs> point of view. <laughs> Albeit, it was first experience. And um, then I finished my studies, I did my PhD, and then I was in this kind of rating business. And right after I had the idea, I want to be self-employed. And when I moved to Switzerland, I moved in from Germany to Switzerland in 1998. And then I was in Switzerland, either I look for a new job or I'm starting a company. And I just decided, let's start a company. And the focus was on using my rating mm -hmm. for particular business topics. Okay. And then I had a chance with Commerzbank, organized by Accenture. Accenture did a project back then at Commerzbank in 1999 mm -hmm. regarding operational risk topic that just popped up at that time. And we first created a pilot system. Back then, banks were still open to spend money on pilot systems, something that they're not doing anymore right now. And we created a complete solution. Are we able to create a rating for operational risks within corporates? And this turned out quite well. And then Commerzbank and, and, and us decided to jointly let's build a standard solution around the topic of operational risk. And then we finished the system and we extended it over time to cover the whole span between governance, risk and compliance, the GRC space, which then came up in the mm -hmm. early 2000s. And how long did that company, you know, exist? Uh, I understand you sold it. So, so how was kind of, you know, the, the, the journey? Uh, I founded a company in June 99 and I sold it in September on the 1st of September, uh, no, on the 1st of October in 2012. Because when, 
when I'm invited to, for example, um, these startup programs for startups, something that I'm a little bit biased, to be honest, whether it's valuable or not valuable. And people always approach me, oh, I'm founding a company and I'm selling it. And I'm always telling people, no, you're not selling a company. You're only bold. Because it's exactly what happens. We were attractive. We had a product uh, which was attractive. Uh, Gartner judged us as being among the top five vendors in the market. Uh, we were the only vendor, by the way, with zero venture mm -hmm. capital funding. All others had enormous amount of venture capital funding. So, for example, one competitor of us was bought by IBM for an enormous amount of money, but they had 120 oh, million wow. venture capital. And uh, they only made, what is it, about four times more mm -hmm. revenue than we did. So it was quite interesting okay. to see. <laughs> and then Thomson Reuters approached us, said, okay, you have an interesting product. They analyzed us. And in the beginning, they said they would like mm -hmm. to partner with us. And we just hope wonderful because what our limit was always, how can yeah. we do international sales? And in the first meeting, Thomson Reuters said, okay, we're no longer interested in partnering with you. So I thought, oops, <laughs> damn it. What did I do wrong? We only want to buy you. Okay. <laughs> and uh, that's the reason why they actually acquired us in the end. And this was then this was finished end of September in 2012. Okay, great. And did you then, you know, yeah, keep working with Thomson Reuters like an earnout period, or did you then leave right away? I stayed for two years. I stayed for two years, but the problem is when you build up your own company and uh, we've got 35 people in the end, and then you are thrown into a 60,000 people company, you are not feeling home that much. So after two years, I decided, um, no, it's not really my cup of tea, so I yeah. better quit. And it's also in the uh, in the kind of it's the opinion also of Thomson Reuters, when they acquire companies, they don't want to have the founder too long in the company. So they rather would like to see them leave a, as soon as possible. Because a founder always thinks different than somebody mm -hmm. who has not yeah, founded true. the company. Although my business partner, he stayed. Uh, until uh, the whole division of finance and risk from Thomson Reuters was mm -hmm. sold to Blackstone. So uh, he actually stayed for another oh, oh wow. six or seven that's, years. That's quite interesting. But I quit after two years. It was sufficient for me. <laughs> so if you can, you know, probably, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, like there's, there's a ton of problems out there. You know, I have an idea. I don't have the money. How do I set up a firm? You know, like if you just, you know, in two or three, you know, you know, core points, you know, what is it, you know, you would recommend to someone that wants to set up a company, you know, what are the, the ups and downs, you know, what do you need to basically endure? Um, it's probably not all glamour setting up your own firm, at least it wasn't with, for me, you know, there was a lot of non-glamour. <laughs> well, it's always, it's always, um, it's always a walk in the sun, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, Put it this way, first of all, listen. I always listened to others, what are the problems? So mm. my current company, although I'm now in the ESG space, I didn't found the company because of ESG. I founded mm. a company of something totally different. I had mm -hmm. the chance to talk to the head of compliance from Swiss Re over here in Switzerland. 
Mm -hmm. And the lady uh, told me, I have a huge issue. We in compliance and risk management, we are writing wonderful documents, how well, how well we're doing in compliance, what is good, what's positive, and kind of document everything enormously well, how something is done. But the board mm -hmm. never wants to read the documents. Isn't there a way that you can read documents automatically and create a one number out of it? Illustrating okay. directly, these are the pros and cons, and then one number, how good and bad are we in compliance? And getting this mm -hmm. one number was never an issue. This was my PhD work. But reading documents was a new area of nowadays called AI. So mm -hmm. I had the idea, why don't I combine text reading, extracting mm -hmm. core elements out of the text, creating indicators out of it, using it in the prediction engine, and present the results. And then we build a platform, a generic platform from get data from anywhere, read the content out of it when it's text information, take indicators directly when you get them, create indicators out of text, aggregate them up in your aggregation logic. Technically wise, it's a neurofuzzy aggregation system, which copes quite well the way a human being is taking decisions and present the results. And because our prediction engine is so transparent, because we are using these special approaches that I developed, we can do the drill down from that's the result. And this is the reason why the system came up with a result. So the explanation of the AI result is immediately provided by the application. And I realized over the past now 27 years, in the beginning, I thought people want to know how something works. So I did all my effort, oh, explaining everything, and I achieved the exact opposite. People are not interested in how it works exactly, but they want to know and they insist on, explain me why the system took a certain decision. And if this can be thoroughly explained, then they're totally fine. And honestly speaking, they don't need to know how is a neural net exactly working, how is fuzzy logic exactly working. They don't really mm. need to know it. But they need to know the system took the decision because of these and these parameters and these and these facts. Mm. These topics led to the following decision. And then they are totally fine. Because then they know, okay, these are the reasons, these are the backgrounds, and now they can take on their own decisions based on the results. And when they just get the results, they are rather reluctant in trusting these results. And with this core platform, I thought that's now the core thing I can do business. And then I realized, mm -hmm. no, it isn't because people or companies don't buy platforms. Mm -hmm. People or companies buy solutions. Mm -hmm. And then I started jointly with a German consulting company, a first kind of ESG rating. The reason why I came up with this one, I was at a conference where all kinds of funds presented their green bonds and green funds and everything. And every time I approached them, how did you judge that something is green? Yeah, we took ESG ratings. From whom? Yeah, from external sources. Um, how can you trust these sources? We don't because they're all different and they mm. are all intransparent. So that's mm. why I said, hey, we need a transparent kind of ESG rating. We developed one based on purely based on kind of available public information. What negative, positive news do we find on BASF, on Siemens, etc., and create a rating out of it. And with this, I approached the Banking Association of Public Banks in Germany. This, is, this was shortly before the pandemic started. Hmm. And then they said, oh, we don't need 
an ESG rating right now, we do need a solution for the EU taxonomy. Mm. And my first reaction, the EU what? <laughs> because a taxonomy for me is a logical semantic structuring of words and not something what, uh, what they call an EU taxonomy. So this kind of, kind of definition, what is green and what is not green by economic activities. Mm. And I took on the challenge that, okay, we have this core platform that we used for other topics as well. Let's use the same core platform for this new topic, EU taxonomy. Mm -hmm. And only with the banking association, we then created the tool what we are nowadays called Taxotool. And this is actually basically the, the history behind it. And talking about your question, um, how is it ups and downs in, um, uh, in a company? I recently listened to... Um, a speech of an old of an old admiral from the US who was actually a seal. Ah, in the I past. know that one. <laughs> and he had these 10 points where we have seen the same. And yes. the first one was, why am I doing a bad in the morning? Because yeah. you learn structures. And the last statement was, there is this bell in the middle mm. of the field. Whenever you are tired, just go there, ring the bell and you are out of this disaster and this torture and everything. But what is the core lesson that you have to learn? never ring the bell no matter how bad it is <laughs> and actually that's the core statement and i fully signed this statement and you can imagine i had even with the old company i had numerous times where i thought oh my god why shall i go on with all this effort and this kind of being let down and etc but that's the way of building up a company hmm. just don't give up <laughs> that's amazing i mean that's that's really cool i have a friend who kind of, you know, sends me that video every two weeks um, and uh, I wholeheartedly embrace it as well. So never ring the bell. I think it's called Edwell, whatever his name, leaves the bridge or something like this. Yeah. 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 So we'll put this into the show notes. And, you know, the so what I take with me is, you know, those 10 rules. But the other one, and this is not what uh, uh, the general says, like listening to what the customers want. Um, I feel this is super important because if you want to preach and, you know, convince people that they shall buy what you think is the right thing for them they almost always repel it um whereas if you just you know are smart and listen and see what they need then you most likely build a market for yourself that um that is it as a good one so so i think that's that's great so let me let me you know we touched upon another topic um which is energy and uh mm -hmm. and um so do we do we actually have a chance to, you know, rebuild our energy usage, you know, from, uh, you know, fossil based into non fossil based? You had very good ideas and, and also, you know, um, uh, uh, things that happened in the past, which which can give us hope. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit? So first of all, yes, I strongly believe we have to change our energy kind of usage and the source of energy. Although, I don't see it black and white because there will some areas remain where we for at least the foreseeable future not, will not be able to change anything. We can maybe just adjust, for example, airplanes. You will not build mm -hmm. any airplanes going across the ocean with uh, whatever electricity or any other fuel, even um, hydrogen. I doubt they are the first planes out, but mm -hmm. these are areas where it will be very, very tough. To in any way make it either yeah. carbon neutral or whatever on the other side there are easy areas yeah. where we can achieve it and for me for example car electrification is the very easy 
area where we can achieve it. The same with home, making your home with Wärmepumpe. Um, I wouldn't even know the English term for maybe it's, maybe it's heat pump. Maybe it's a heat, maybe it's heat pump would be the easy way. It's called heat pump, so heat pump is the name uh, because it is definitely possible to use it. Again, I'm not seeing it black and white. I'll give you a wonderful example that I'm definitely not seeing it black and white. My the, the house of my parents built in 1978, and I had the idea I'm gonna transform this building, which is still running on oil and wood, into a carbon neutral building. The building is somewhere in the countryside, and you can imagine it has a, a certain value. Fine, and then I said, okay, fine. What kind of kind of means would I have to take this yeah. building from a non carbon neutral into a carbon neutral or at least even carbon zero building. First one is, of course, isolation. We did some isolation mm -hmm. already. Uh, next one would be solar power. Fine, solar power on top. We put solar power, there are batteries in there, fine. I even looked into something. Uh, there's a company in Berlin. They're called Home Powered Solutions. And what they do, they take your energy, that which is too much, that you're producing, overproducing, mm -hmm. and they're generating hydrogen out of it and then you have these ga gas storages in the backyard and in the in the winter time they're transforming it back hmm. into electricity somehow some building i think three or four in germany are totally independent already but the majority of the houses are not fully independent so normally they last till about february and then the energy is out unless you can actually build more of these storages in the backyard having said that it's a, it's a huge investment. Then, of course, heat pump in there and everything. And then I confronted my parents with the fact, okay, two, first of all, we would have to invest 250,000 plus mm. euros into the building. Mm. And the building in the countryside is barely more worth mm. than this amount, number one. Number two, the value of the building will not increase mm. by these 250. And what really then in the end, kind of uh, stop me from doing it is as well saying I have to buy the electricity from the grid and right now mm -hmm. the grid in Germany emits 412 420 CO2 gram CO2 mm -hmm. per kilowatt hour for comparison Switzerland 60% mm -hmm. water energy so hydrogen energy we are emitting only 150 Austria and we have a nuclear power still Austria, with zero nuclear power, they emit 165. So Germany, heavy coal-based energy is 425. Mm -hmm. Poland is over 1,000 because they're heavy coal, uh, only coal-based. Or UK, for example, they switched from coal to gas. Mm -hmm. They're down to, to, to 260. So that's the difference between how these kind of mm -hmm. energy kind mm -hmm. of carriers are actually burning by emitting CO2. But then I just calculated, okay, mm -hmm. what is the energy I need for the building? I'm, buy, I'm getting it from the grid. And then mm -hmm. I ended up in having exact the same amount of carbon emission by taking the 1,200 liters of oil that my parents are using just from the electric grid. Of course, I can claim it's not at the location of the house. It's somewhere else. But I'm, down, I'm back to zero. And I spent a quarter of a million euros in the, into the house plus... My 80-year-old parents would have a two-year two-year construction mm -hmm. in their house, but they say no, not in our age. 
So, mm -hmm. and this is something that the politicians have to think of. How can we make these buildings somehow kind of more green? Yeah. And it all starts with a grid, of course. Yeah. But I strongly believe there is a way to transform our energy from the fossil fuels and coal I'm putting into the fossil fuels and or into non-fossil fuels. Mm. Yeah, I get that. And my, my, my most beloved number is there, what is the overall energy that the total world is needing, is requiring. So, and this energy is not measured in kilowatt, it's measured in joule. One joule is one watt second. And the world energy demand is plus and minus 600 exajoule. These are 612 zeros behind, may not even 15 zeros behind. It's a huge number. And from this 600, bear in mind, only the US is consuming almost 100. So one sixth of the world energy consumption of 16, of 8 billion people is just consumed by 250 or 280 million US citizens. Germany, for example, they consume about 10 to 12 exajoule of energy. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, as, as of course, as a math, as a math uh, like person, I then took the math. Okay, let's assume I'm producing this energy with cyclists, and I'm a rower. And when I'm really hard cycling, I'm getting the 200 watt kind of hours of energy. But I'm not taking this for a long period. So maybe somebody who's doing the Tour de France they get the 200 watts per, uh, per minute per, per hour. So let's assume we have these guys. Okay. How many people do you assume would we need just for Germany for the 10 exajoule or 12 exajoule to produce the energy that Germany needs every year? If we take these guys 24 hours cycling, 360 days a year, how many people do we need to produce the energy for Germany? I have no clue. Two billion. Oh, that's a lot. You need two billion people just to produce the core energy that Germany requires every year. To make it even more striking, as I said, the US about 100, China is about 110 exajoule. So just these two countries take one third of the global energy or consume one third of the global energy. And to produce about 100 exajoule of energy, you need twice the population of the Earth. 16 billion people cycling 24 hours, 365 days a year on 200 watt per hour. Okay. And that's a lot. Okay. So, so how do we translate this into the energy, you know, to change the energy mix that we are needing in order to decarbonize our economies? For me, for me the core message here is we need to go away from fossil fuel into non-fossil fuel, number one. Number two, a topic we have not talked about yet is um, in the IPCC report, the, re the most recent one, mm -hmm. there was a clear section in there that we have a huge advantage by nature because we are emitting CO2 and we have done so for the past 150 years. But we have a huge advantage that there are two so-called sinks, as, mm -hmm. they call, as they are called. These are the plants 
and the oceans. Mm-hmm. And lucky us, these two things, so carbon things, have c- kind of consumed or absorbed 50% of all the carbon that we ever put out over the past 150 years were absorbed by the oceans and by nature. If this would not be the case, mm-hmm. we would already be above 800 parts per million in the atmosphere instead of the 400 as we have it right now. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind the two kind of parts per million increase almost every year. Yeah. So we are heavily depending on these two things. Having said that, the good thing is, and this is also written in the IPCC report, when we are reducing our carbon emission, it is a clear fact that the carbon con- uh, kind of consumption or absorption by plants and oceans will by percentage increase. So right now they take 50% of our emissions. If we are reducing our emissions, as funny as it sounds, they will still take the same amount in. So we will, they will increase percentage-wise in the consumption or in the absorption of carbon emission into their world, so into plants, into the oceans. And therefore, we don't have to go down to zero. We have to reduce by 50% the carbon emissions. And then the plants and the oceans will help us to nibble it out and even reduce the carbon concentration over time in the atmosphere. And therefore, I say we have to go out of coal, oil, gas as much as possible. That's amazing. In the, in the discussion that we had before our conversation, you talked about Switzerland and, you know, their, um, you know, trains. Um, That's and, one example. Uh, yeah. Could you elaborate on this a little bit? Yeah, uh, we talked about it briefly, remember, because I also said that I'm not talking to people anymore about uh, car electrification because I'm electric for the past six years. I'm not regretting it any minute, but uh, the discussion is getting really, really annoying. And then I came across a very interesting fact that in 1912, the Swiss mm-hmm. kind of uh, train department decided we are switching from coal to electricity. And remember, we just did this brief chat GPT search prior to this meeting, and we realized that the dispute in society was around loss of people, loss of employees. Um, so unemployment rate increase. We don't get the electricity um, a kind of um, environmental problems. So all these topics that are currently discussed again now on car electrification as an example, were the same discussions more than 100 years ago back in Switzerland. And this is amazing. And I think, you know, this gives us a lot of hope, you know, in the current big transformation of our economies that we have to do globally. But this experiment has been done more than 100 years before. And we can actually look, you know, what the people and what, you know, fears they had back in the days, which are the same that we have at the moment as well. So that this is just a normal cycle and we just need to go through this. And hopefully technology and time will help us to decarbonize our our economies quite well. So we'll put all of this in the show notes, but let me, you know, take one last pivot um, into, you know, how the European Union and the EU taxonomy, you know, the thing that you kind of, you know, were baffled about, you know, yes. when you heard it the first time, you know, so what, what is this role in kind of, you know, decarbonizing the economy and, you know, also the firm that you have been setting up, how can you make a contribution that banks and the whole economy is, is less carbon intensive? If we can spend a couple of minutes on this one. 
Yeah, of course. Um, in the end, to get carbon neutral or reduce the carbon emission is a mix of hundreds of or thousands of different kind of activities that we have to undertake. And in 2015, at the Paris Climate Agreement, they wrote in paragraph two, a clear statement. We have to control all financial streams in order to reduce carbon emissions, because we can, with the financial streams, guiding them into green investments, we are reducing in the long run, the carbon emissions down the road. And based on this article two, the EU took on the objective, let's create a regulation and they called it EU taxonomy. Let's create a definition. When is an activity, for example, production or manufacturing of steel or the building of a house or a house itself, under which conditions, under which circumstances is this asset or this object or this activity considered green? And of course, what the EU does, they always overdo it. So we talk about all in all, right now, in the beginning it was about 30,000 pages of regulation. Now there's a new set coming out uh, or just came out. So we talk about easily 30, 35, 40,000 pages of regulation, which of wow. course frightens in the beginning everybody. Oh my God, are you nuts? How shall yeah. we ever be able to, able to handle it? And yes, it is a given fact, it is enormously complex, but albeit, mm -hmm. it's a complex topic. Yep. And of course, you can't just state, okay, the steel manufacturing is now green and uh, I'm tossing a coin and I call it green. That's exactly yep. what we would like to avoid, these kind of terms out in the market, greenwashing that everybody uh, wants to avoid. That's exactly that needs to be avoided. And yes, it is a complex topic and therefore, a complex regulation is needed and honestly speaking yes it is complex so um and when we started this kind of project more than three years ago uh there were about 40 eu banks that did first tests mm -hmm. with the first version of the eu taxonomy mm -hmm. and they get a, gave a, a huge list of kind of points of critique and the three core points where it's enormously complex honestly speaking they're totally right it's way too expensive for a single bank to build it. They are right there as well. And we are lacking the data, mainly data related to carbon emission. Because yeah. in the EU taxonomy, so for example, your manufacturing of cement is called green mm -hmm. when you are emitting more less than 495 kilogram of CO2 for every ton mm -hmm. of cement produced. Bear in mind in the 1990s, for one ton of cement, about two tons of CO2 were emitted. Why? It's enormously energy intense to build cement in the first place. And therefore, the energy consumption is enormously high. And nowadays, they have more and more processes. How can we reduce these en the energy consumption or change even the process? And there are even developments now underway to even reduce these carbon emissions for the production, again, more by 80, more than 80% by even incorporating carbon directly into the cement. It's still in, in, the, in the mm -hmm. development phase, research, etc. but there are ways towards this di direction. And the EU taxonomy just says, okay, fine, we define the limit. 
and we yeah. will refine these limits or reduce these limits over time. So what is the maximum emission of a car, the maximum emission of whatever they define in this regulation? And what we took on is, okay, fine. How can we use, first of all, technology, plane, but also tools around artificial intelligence to make the complex process for end users as easy as possible? And wherever possible, where can we automate the process? So, for example, when you assess a building in Austria, in Germany, in, in France, Switzerland, not, but other countries, yes, they have so-called energy certificates per building. So we can now read yeah. all the content out of these certificates and can use the information directly mm -hmm. in the assessment process. And via this approach, we can also take other documents and take information out from there and pre-fill all the questions that are asked by the EU taxonomy. So basically your company helps and supports the, you know, the banks, which are leverage points in the financial systems as defined in article two of Paris and then taken up by Europe. Um, you help those banks to fulfill their role yeah. to decarbonize the economy um, with kind of, you know, sectioning the loans into, into let's say green or not green loans. So that kind of the transparency can be, can be kind of, you know, given to, to the decision makers. And then over time, the, the idea is, you know, the more transparency you have, the more you kind of want to reduce those levels um, and, you know, start to manage the whole, the whole portfolio in a bank. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? This is the core basic idea behind it, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing. So we are, guiding, or we, are gu we are guiding the investments into green investments. And on top of it, bear in mind, from 2024 on, so next mm -hmm. year on, no fund and no bond is allowed to be called green anymore, although there are still some kind of discussions going around. But let's assume it's coming the way it is planned. From next year on, no fund, no bond is allowed to be called yeah. green anymore as long as it's not assured that all assets in the bond and in the fund are green according to the oh, EU taxonomy. Wow. And what's also positive, I have now been in compliance for the past 25 years. Have you ever heard something about the Australian New Zealand Risk Management Standard? No, <laughs> I have not. This was the first regulation in the 80s yeah. about risk management. Uh -huh. And this regulation was done by the regulator in Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And this standard definition of risk management is now the global mm -hmm. standard for all regulators mm -hmm. on risk management. Of course, they took the standard and amended it to their requirements. Mm -hmm. But plus and minus, the Australian New Zealand risk management standard is now the global standard. And there are other examples as well where one regulator defined something and other regulators said, okay, why shall we reinvent the wheel? We just take it on and adopt it to our requirements and implement. Mm -hmm. And uh, before Christmas, I was invited by the Deutsche Bundesbank mm -hmm. because they are meeting once a year with all other state banks around the globe. And I was there to introduce the EU taxonomy. And there was the State Bank of India, Australia, they're all there. And of course, I, I, I popped the question, uh, I'm terribly sorry, I'm talking about EU taxonomy. None of you is from the EU. What is your interest in the EU taxonomy? Mm -hmm. And Unisona, they all said, because our countries will implement the EU taxonomy, of course, 
by our standards, amended to our requirements. India is not the European community. We have other issues in our country. We will amend it to our requirements and our specific requirements and then implement it in India. And uh, John Kerry from the US said something similar as well for the US. That's amazing. It will not be one-to-one, -one, but it will be adjusted to their requirements and then it will suddenly be a global initiative. And it will be a wonderful piece of the puzzle to the overall game. That's amazing. And, and that's probably also a good way of, you know, like uh, coming to an end for our conversation here today, because, you know, the EU uh, or Paris, then EU, and then the taxonomy being something that is implemented around the world um, is, I think, something that we should be hopeful for. And um, and also, you know, the the thing that you mentioned with the IPCC report, you know, if um, if that is um, kind of a good way of, you know, like bringing down um, the carbon emissions by 50 percent, at least, you know, that's a goal probably that's much easier to achieve than the 90 or even the 100 percent, yep. you know, reduction, which will give people hope. And I guess, you know, when we are at 50 percent, we still will find ways of, you know, getting another 50 percent of the 50 percent and then another and then another. But I think, you know, smaller steps will allow people to to see you know the the light at the end of the tunnel um so that this is an achievable target um and not kind of you know be be frustrated about something that they feel that they can't do and and your work with um, your tools um will hopefully make a big contribution to to the overall decarbonization of of our we hope so too <laughs> thank you so much for being here hans peter it was a pleasure talking to you today well thank you for the invitation This is the end of today's episode, but stay tuned. Many more interesting topics are yet to come. And don't forget to hit the follow button to never miss a new and exciting episode of our podcast, Important Problems. <laughs>